News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, good ideas can come from anywhere. That's something I think a lot of good leaders know. So even if you're an organization like NASA, you have to recognize that a good idea might not always be your own, even even if it comes from a group of fourth graders. In fact, a group of fourth graders at St. Brother Andre Elementary School in Ottawa have had quite an impact with their questions and their research with NASA. We're going, to, we're going to find out more about it right now, actually. So joining us now, we have a couple of guests. We have Deborah Quailblier, who's a PGL teacher at St. Brother Andre Elementary, who facilitated this project. And we have Dr. Paul Mayer, who is a professor of chemistry at the University of Ottawa. Good morning to both of you. Good morning. Good morning. Deborah, let me start with you. Tell me about your students, first of all, and the question that they had. So my students actually come to St. Brother Andre Catholic School um, one day per week. I have 70 students, but they come one day per week uh, for, program, uh, for programming that's alternative to the regular program. And um, we just, I, I, I looked into this Cubes in Space program that is a worldwide contest. Um, and it's open to students from 11 to 18 years old. My students being a little bit younger, uh, 9 to 11, we decided to kind of start investigating a little bit about things that would require space uh, in order to test them. And uh, that's how we started talking about questions and what's important in space and uh, what kinds of things they would want to know that require space flight to test. Okay, and that's really how this all got started. Yes, really how it got started. Dr. Mayer, I would imagine that with science, that's that's part of the, that's a big part of it, right? It's just asking good questions. Well, that is that is absolutely the key to it all. And I mean, what's great about the kids is that they're not afraid to ask those questions. And they just happened to ask a really interesting one and <laughs> when this kind of came across my desk, I mean, how cool is that? It was a real pleasure for us to be able to to lend a hand. Okay. Now I have Deborah. What is this question? Well, the question was my original question to them was, "What do you think people might want to know if they were traveling to space?" We know that there's lots in the news. The kids are always watching the SpaceX, the NASA launches, the Canadian Space Agency involvement in all of it, and so it's it's a topic of discussion. And you know, students have many students have epipens for their allergies. And so they were saying, well, what if I was flying to space? What would I need? Like, I would need my EpiPen to work. Do we know if it works? So that led to more research. And, and uh, yeah, we decided to run with it with the help of Professor Mayer, of course, because I don't have that biomolecular background. <laughs> and so what happened when they brought this question to you, Dr. Mayer? Well, when, I mean, it, as I said, it kind of came in an email and, and I looked at it and I talked with our our facility manager. So I'm also the, the director of the John Holmes Mass Spectrometry Facility. It's a core facility at Ottawa U and we do analysis of many different things. And we looked at it and said, well, of course we can do this. And I mean, what, what an amazing question to ask. I had never heard of cubes in space. So I thought, well, I'm going to learn just as much as they will. So uh, let's let them run with it and see how we can help. Okay, so then what happened at that point, Deborah, when you said to the kids, we're moving on with this here, kids? Yeah, they were pretty excited. 
to be to be really honest, I said, guys, this is not my expertise. We need somebody who knows about molecules. How else will we test whether we know there's a there's been a change or a chemical reaction with our epinephrine samples? So I said, I, I said, I leave it with me. I'll see what I can do. And you know, luckily, Paul answered the Paul answered the call and said, yes, we can do this. So uh, they were excited. They uh, they couldn't wait to meet him and. Um, He's a fantastic teacher, so he sort of brought down that whole understanding of the molecular structure of an entity and how to study it. So they, uh, they've learned a ton, and so have I. I love this idea that a bunch of kids thought, hey, would my EpiPen work if I went into space? And so do we know, Dr. Mayer, would it work? Well, certainly the, I mean, it's, I wouldn't say yes or no right now, but the result that we got from their experiment suggests that this requires a lot more looking into. Um, so when we, we tested the EpiPen solution before and after spaceflight, and certainly after spaceflight, we couldn't detect any active epinephrine in the vial that was sent up anymore. And so that led us to conclude that, you know, something has happened to this, and Worst case scenario, there's less of it there than there was before. So right now, the hypothesis is that no, no, it would not work. And uh, now they're on to the next question, which is as all good scientists will know that this one result opened up more questions <laughs> and the students are going to get to try and answer one of, or two of those again. So. I assume that question is like, why doesn't it work? But let me ask you first, Dr. Merritt. So well, getting it on board NASA, like that, this is just amazing to me that this question led to the point where you actually were able to put an EpiPen into space to see this happen. Well, and that's the Cubes in Space program. I think uh, it, I, when I first learned about it from Deborah, I thought, what a remarkable opportunity. And, you know, how can you not take advantage of that and... and teach kids, you know, they can learn and explore uh, and answer their questions. And their questions can take them literally anywhere. Deborah, what's it been like for your students? I think it's very motivating. They're, uh, they're excited to come to class. They're the, the buzz in the classroom uh, when they're investigating the next question, which, by the way, the next question doesn't seem to be why doesn't it work, because they originally hypothesized that it would there would be a chemical reaction, there would be a change in molecular structure when exposed to cosmic radiation. And that's what their research led. So they feel they know the answer why it doesn't work. It's because of the cosmic radiation. So their true next question is, hey, how do we fix it? Because that's where their mindset is. We can do real world stuff. Uh, Let's come up with a solution. So they come in and they're ready to do research. They collaborate together and they're investigating different materials and different ways of engineering some form of casing or protection for the next files. Um, Because we're currently applying again for spaceflight to get some room on that rocket. It's very limited space and there are not cubes sent out to everybody. So you actually have to apply. This is phenomenal. Now, is your class also preparing to go and and visit NASA, like to talk to NASA? So we have a meet set up with um, one of the NASA scientists for next week. And also for the Canadian Space Agency, there's two um, health-related scientists that's meeting with them after March break. And um, beyond that, this June, 
there's many there are many families who will be traveling to NASA Wallops Flight Facility because Cubes in Space puts on this fabulous what they call Rocket Fest, and it allows the students to present their findings, to speak on stage with a microphone to NASA professionals and other students from around the world who come and present their what they were investigating. Um, and then they, it culminates with watching the rocket take off with their cubes for this year, for this experiment. Wow. Dr. Mayor, it's entirely possible one of these fourth graders are going to take your job one day. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> I'm counting on it. <laughs> Do you see that progression in their curiosity, Deborah? that they go, hey, now they're it's kind of opening up their minds to different possibilities? Absolutely. Without a doubt. Uh, a, one parent uh, commented to me um, a little while, while back, it's so phenomenal. My child, who kind of just went from one thing to another, just seems to have this purpose now. They understand. They, they have an idea of what they want to do in the future. So, Wow. Wow. Where can we yeah. find out more information? Is there a way for us to keep track of this, of what's going on? Uh, well, you certainly could follow the Cubes in Space website, but I would be happy to uh, send you information when we're... Maybe maybe when we're heading to Rocket Fest or something, and you might uh, yes. you might want to cover what's going on there. Oh, I would love to do that. Send that to me now, Doctor Mayor. Before we let you go, any advice for other kids out there who might have questions? Just keep asking them, and you know, try to find. You know, I think it's our role as adults to help facilitate their participation, and then get out of the way and let them do their thing. And so, find some some adults who will help you do that. That's good advice. Thanks so much to both of you for joining us this morning. Thank you for Thanks having for your interest. That's Deborah Quailblier, who's a PGL teacher at St. Brother Andre Elementary School in Ottawa, and Dr. Paul Mayer, who's a professor of chemistry at the University of Ottawa, who helped the students conduct this study. It's part of NASA's Cubes in Space program. It's a global STEM program for students 11 to 18. What they do is they provide two suborbital flight opportunities on NASA missions uh, for students to have an experiment make you know and they they'll pick experiments and in Ottawa that's exactly what happened their question about would an EpiPen work in space got answered and they found out definitively no doesn't look like it would right absolutely brilliant future geniuses that we're going to be dealing with uh, in this country love it this is mornings with Simi Allegations were being taken very seriously, but we did not see the evidence that he presented in the intelligence to support the claims. All right, that's Jody Thomas, the Prime Minister's National Security and Intelligence Advisor. Uh, She was testifying in front of the House of Commons Committee studying foreign election interference. Now that committee is continuing to hear testimony because the questions and concerns really haven't died down when it comes to these concerns over foreign interference in our elections. But will anything actually be investigated? Well, let's ask somebody who also used to do that job. Vincent Rigby is with us now, the former National Security and Intelligence Advisor to the Prime Minister, and actually is on the speaker list for this meeting. Uh, Vincent, thanks for being back with us this morning. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Now, I know you've had this job before. So did this issue come up when you were when you were doing this? Well, I've always got to be very careful what I say because I still have to adhere to the Security of Information Act, so I can't get into details about what I briefed the Prime Minister. But um, I think the headline yesterday 
there would have been a headline yesterday if any of those officials had said that the prime minister had not been briefed about hostile state activities, um, including foreign interference. I think you just have to look at the newspaper sometimes to figure out what a national security intelligence advisor would be talking to the prime minister about. So um, did my job in- include uh, foreign interference and hostile state activities and that sort of thing? I mean, absolutely. I think that's just a bit of a no-brainer, but I certainly couldn't give you details about what I briefed the PM on. Right. But that's a good, I think, reminder for Canadians, for all of us, in that a lot of this, these, these headlines for us might be new, but for what's going on behind the scenes, a lot of this isn't new, is it? No, it's not new at all, but I think it's a really important point that you make. Um, I mean, foreign interference has been a concern for for a number of years. And if you look at the public reports of the Canadian Security Intelligence Service for the last few years, if you look at the reports of the Communication Security Establishment, another one of our of our security agencies, if you look at those reports, they they talk about foreign interference. Um, and as I call it, the National Security Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians, a really great, great uh, body of parliamentarians, did an excellent report on foreign activities, uh, um, foreign interference activities, sorry, uh, three, four years ago. So this stuff is out there. It's happening in other countries. None of it, to be perfectly honest, would you come to the real surprise to me that this stuff has been happening? We all know that it's been happening. The question now is how serious was it at the end of the day? Right. And that's really, I think, what a lot of us, you know, regular people, we have to keep in mind here, Vincent, is that uh, this is issues that our security services deal with on a daily basis. So then what what do you think, what kind of parameters, what kind of framework should we be viewing all of this through? Well, again, I, I think that um, this is this is activity that is, is, is happening on a regular basis. And so it's not just foreign interference with respect to the electoral process, but there are foreign interference activities being conducted by countries like China, Russia, Iran, North Korea that are happening on a regular basis. And so uh, the the parameters for me is that we should be having a a greater public discussion about these sorts of things so that Canadians are more aware. And I've been saying since I retired from the public service that Canadians need to think a little bit more and talk a little bit more about national security issues. And the government needs to talk a little about about them a little bit more. And so um, I've been saying that we should have, for example, annual threat assessments put out by the government, which actually says, you know, this stuff is happening. Um, Foreign interference is happening. Espionage is happening. Um, Theft of intellectual property, cyber attacks, all these different threats that are out there that I think pass under the radar for most Canadians. They know about it in a very general way, but I think we need to have a more robust discussion. So I'm not uh, supportive of leaks of documents. I think it was egregious what happened. Whoever leaked these documents shouldn't have done that. But we are having a public discussion now, and that's, that's not true. necessarily a bad thing in terms of informing Canadians. Well, Vincent, do you think, though, that that public discussion should include something like a public inquiry, which we've heard some of the opposition parties call for? I don't think that the current House committee is going to get to the bottom of this because they don't have access to classified documents and government officials, as you saw yesterday, are not going to talk about this in any de- any detail and nor should they. Uh, they should not go public with intelligence and, and, and get into that because it, it can potentially turn around and be a threat to our national security if they do talk about it and a threat to individual sources, that sort of that sort of thing. Um, I actually am a big fan of that body I just mentioned, the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians. It is supposed to be a nonpartisan body. It's not a parliamentary committee. It's a committee of parliamentarians. So it's a very important distinction. And MPs who sit on that on that body are supposed to 
park their political credentials at the door and be as nonpartisan as they possibly can be. And they've got um, high security clearances. I mean, they're cleared up the top secret so they could actually look at the documents and, and be given the documents and uh, and come to a conclusion. And their reports are public. They're, they're often heavily redacted. Uh, as they should be, but they can still come to conclusions and say to Canadians, this is what we this is what we found and these are the things we think need to be done to improve the situation. So I like that body. Uh, David McGinty is a fantastic chair. And so um, I, I think throwing the ball over to them uh, would be a good idea. All right. So are you going to be following along quite closely here? You're, you're, there's a chance you could testify. Is that right? Uh, it's it's possible, um, w- without a doubt. I also follow it as uh, sort of quasi-academic now at uh, at McGill University at the Max Bell School of Public Policy. So I, I follow it as a former practitioner, but but also as a as an interested commentator. Um, and and hopefully I can add some value to to the discussion as we as we move forward. We'll see what happens, Vincent. Thank you for your time this morning. Absolutely. My pleasure. Anytime. That's Vincent Rigby, who is a former national security and intelligence advisor to the prime minister. In fact, in the last few years, uh, he was doing that job in January of 2020, retired in September of 2021. Uh, So he kind of is right in the middle of all of this. And as you heard him say, it's a good discussion for us to be having when it comes to national security, uh, you know, events and, and these things. Doesn't like the way it happened. Uh, but thinks that this is a better, broader discussion that we should be having here. Now, do you think there should be a public inquiry into this? Would you? Is this a discussion that you think Canada needs to have more of? Let's talk about that. Simi at cknw.com. You can call or text our buzz line 604-331-2899. This is Mornings with Simi. The Crown properly considered everything produced to them and uh, concluded that there was no substantial likelihood of conviction in this case. That is Ravi Hira, one of the lawyers involved here in what is said to be one of the largest money laundering investigations we have ever seen in this country. But what we won't see, as you just heard, is criminal charges related to it. Now, at the time that it was announced back in 2019 or so, the Combined Forces Special Enforcement Unit of BC said that it was likely to set an investigative benchmark for future investigations. And they tracked millions of dollars in suspicious money going from a business in Richmond to local casino gamblers. That's what, according to police at the time, money that was even talked about during testimony at the Cullen Commission of Inquiry into Money Laundering. So what has gone wrong here? Well, somebody who's been following this all along, of course, and reporting on it is Sam Cooper, investigative journalist for Global News, and joins us now. Good morning, Sam. Good morning, Simi. Oh, you've been looking at this way back. When did you first hear about this case? I first heard about it uh, in 2017. Simi, if you remember, uh, back then I was at the Vancouver Sun and broke the, the e-pirate casino money laundering story, and I understood that this was a parallel organized crime investigation that involved the same suspects. Uh, and uh, there was even a big news release in earlier 2017 about this, uh, what the you know organized crime investigators called a transnational organized crime operation. And But it, there's been a very strange delay, uh, as you know, for years, what was happening with this case. It, it's just a very, in my opinion, a very much more targeted investigation of the same people, the same alleged Vancouver model activity in comparison to the e-pirate case, which we've talked about, this giant systemic money laundering case involving a Richmond underground drug bank. 
So what happened in this case? As we now know, uh, there's been a, a, an unwillingness to pursue uh, police recommended charges. And uh, the real uh, boiled down essence of what we've learned from these two reviews is uh, the, the last lawyer to take a look at whether, uh, you know, uh, the, the Crown should proceed with a prosecution said that essentially uh, it's illegal to not register an illegal money, uh, money services business. But in Canada, it's not illegal to operate an unregistered uh, uh, money services business. Which, if you're confused by the, the nature of that law, I am. I'm, I'm just as confused. But the other key issue here is that we know from reporting in the Cullen Commission that uh, the RCMP was tracking drug dealers bringing in bags, uh, suitcases of cash into this underground bank in Richmond, this unregistered uh, transnational underground bank connected to businesses in Hong Kong, Macau, all over the world, Mexico, Peru. And so police were very confident this was drug money. That case, as we know, fell apart in late 2018 due to a disclosure error. The RCMP had so much evidence, most of it in Mandarin, that uh, a mistake was made by prosecutors. They essentially gave the defense uh, uh, the names of uh, people that could have been uh, the, the concern was killed because the defense side now knew their names. That case was abandoned. And really, uh, in this case, uh, the, the last lawyer to look at it has raised the same issue. So much disclosure of evidence that it could be very difficult to do so. And so they, uh, a number of lawyers essentially said there's no public interest here, low chance of prosecution. Uh, Simi, I'll end my answer <laughs> to you what went wrong here. Uh, first of all, uh, Calvin Krusty, a former uh, RCMP transnational crime investigator who testified in the Cullen Commission, knew both of these cases very well. His reaction to me this morning was uh, e-nationalized fell apart, just like e-pirate, because Canada lacks uh, good federal and provincial prosecution laws that would enable police to target very sophisticated transnational crime. And uh, he made the same case at the Cullen Commission, but Commissioner Cullen did not take up uh, those recommendations from Krusty and other police that say Canada needs a, a real look at how our our uh, criminal laws look at dealing with very sophisticated organized crime. It just sounds, Sam, like we just we don't know how to handle these big cases, right? Like I know in the United States, a big game changer for them decades ago was when they brought in the RICO laws and they were able to tackle organized crime in a different way. Is Canada, do you think, at that point now where we we need to figure out how to handle the changing nature of these types of crimes? You're exactly right. That would be my opinion. That would be the assessment of a number of experts. Uh, I've reported before that uh, the former Attorney General, now Premier uh, uh, E.B., had sent a letter to Public Safety Minister Bill Blair in 2019 saying, we're going through history now, if you remember the German report identified Canada. Yes, Canada lacks any laws that would be able to deal, you know, with real organized crime. And you're right. Uh, state the, the United States has the, those racketeering laws that enable them to draw a web around, you know, very clear organized crime actors. Uh, Canada doesn't have those types of laws. And as uh, people such as Calvin Krusty testified, the Sinaloa cartel is operating in Vancouver, dealing with these same uh, Asian transnational gangs laundering money around the world and but the rcmp cannot get a wiretap on the sinaloa cartel after over half a year of trying whereas in australia and the united states it would take two to three days to a week to get wiretaps on these 
uh, murderous transnational cartels. Okay, so, so then, Sam, obviously, like, there needs to be the will here. I was talking about this with Von Palmer to get these laws changed. At the federal level, has that will changed at all? Do you see any evidence of it? I don't see any evidence uh, of, of the will at all. And really, I, I do think at this point, after watching this uh, sort of issue for years, we can look at Commissioner Cullen's, uh, you know, uh, his his response to these issues that were raised to him. He said that this, you know, changing federal laws uh, at this level could, uh, you know, deal with looking into the Charter of Rights, you know, which is a very, very uh, important set of laws. But the experts in policing say, unfortunately, uh, very simply, it, they make they, the, the Charter of Rights is used as a shield in almost in every drug trafficking and money laundering case, and that's at the heart of the matter. So, the will it, it would take a great deal of uh, maybe it'll take a, a lot more fentanyl deaths before we could yeah. get lawyers in Canada to consider looking at those very deep legal reform issues. Well, Sam, thank you so much for that this morning. Thanks, Simi. Sam Cooper, investigative journalist for Global News. You can check out his latest work on this and, of course, any other topic at globalnews.ca. This is Mornings with Simi. Government will continue pushing forward so that we can deliver real results for Canadians and uphold the principles of publicly funded universal health care that Canadians are so rightly proud of. All right, that's Prime Minister Trudeau with the announcement. You've heard about the money, right? You've seen the headlines. It's something like $27 billion for health care over the next 10 years. A deal struck with the B.C. government and the federal government. What does all that mean, though? I mean, that's the amount that's being touted. Does this make improvements? Does it help you get a doctor and access to the system when you need it? Well, let's talk more about it. Patty Haydu joins us now, the Federal Minister of Indigenous Services. Thank you very much for being here. Hi, Simi. Nice to hear your voice. Well, nice to have you because we have so many questions about this. How, How will this improve things for people in B.C.? Like, what does this mean for us? Well, I mean, first of all, this will give an additional financial capacity to the province to be able to modernize uh, data systems, to be able to recruit and retain uh, nurses and doctors, to be able to uh, transform healthcare systems to be more innovative and reduce costs overall, but also improve service. Ultimately, at the end of the day, Simi, this is about making sure that when people need healthcare, they have it, whether they're living in an urban center or whether they're living in a rural center. I come from Northern Ontario, and I can tell you that Healthcare is in the top two things that people talk about up there, um, obviously, with the environment being uh, being a close second or sometimes a first, but they're often intertwined. And so I, I'll just say that uh, this is exciting news for BC. It also will give an opportunity for the government of Canada to work more closely with provinces and territories on, on using data to understand health uh, trends and health impacts across the country. Okay, so what is BC agreeing to by doing this? Like, are there certain things the federal government would like to make sure BC is guaranteeing? Absolutely. So this is an agreement in principle, the broad strokes, if you will, of how the money will flow and and the commitment of the government of Canada to contribute that financial power to BC's work around healthcare. But now the work will begin in really fine-tuning that agreement. And as I said, one of the things that uh, everyone agrees we need to do a better job on is, is data and it's understanding things like health trends. I was the Minister of Health during COVID and I can tell you it was really frustrating all across the board for Canadians to understand 
just the basics. Who was getting sick? What neighborhoods seemed to have more uh, propensity to catching COVID? What could we do better if we had had better data? And how could we have targeted our interventions better? That's just one example of, of the use of data. But the other thing is to keep track, to keep track of um, whether or not we're making progress. I mean, one of the things you'll hear probably from people that you speak to all the time is the lack of access to primary care. And nobody should go without doctors or healthcare professionals in their lives. And so we'll be keeping um, close tabs on wait times for people that are um, seeking to access uh, primary care services and urgent care services. Right. Okay. So this agreement then has what one-time funding, right? To specifically look at funding urgent needs for emergency rooms and surgeries. And, and so you, the federal government wants a measurement of that. That's right. I mean, there's a there's a there's a one time component, but it's really about a commitment over over a decade, and it's about again strengthening our healthcare system. The money's an important tool, no no doubt about it, but it's not just money that's going to result in the kinds of outcomes that we want to see. Mental health is another area that um, you know everyone across the country is struggling with um, how best to treat mental health, how we can actually get people the right kinds of services at the right kinds of times, and prevent people from. Uh, who are experiencing distress from uh, from getting worse. Uh, we're all struggling with what to do about the scourge of opioid overdose. And this is something BC has been leading the way on, by the way, in terms of um, looking at innovative ways to help people stay alive who are using uh, really dangerous substances and, and hopefully get people closer to treatment or supports that will reduce that problematic use. And all of that stuff has to be tracked and measured so that we know what's working. Because it's it's futile in a way to keep repeating things that aren't working. This gives us an opportunity to agree on what kind of data we'll collect and how we'll use it. And how will the federal government help BC kind of get more internationally trained, you know, doctors, nurses in our province? Well, you know, that's the work really of the province and the colleges that are, are the ones that license doctors, nurses, and other healthcare professionals. This money will give them additional uh, flexibility and tools to be able to support that work. But at the end of the day, the province and the, the colleges of nurses and physicians and uh, allied healthcare workers will have to determine uh, with the province how best to make sure that people that have those skills can quickly trans transfer their skills and get accredited here in BC. It's different all across the country. Uh, the process in Ontario is, you know, they have their own colleges and nurses. And, and in fact, the province of Ontario or the province of uh, PEI, they all have their own, their own um, protocols around how to make sure that internationally trained people have the uh, capacity to practice in Canada. So we have to do that more quickly. That's for sure. Are there measurements then, you talked about underserved communities, rural communities, and I assume Indigenous communities are included in there. Are there measures to track the effectiveness there as well? That's, that's certainly our hope as we work through these negotiations, that we'll be able to start to measure things like equity of access to care. So you mentioned urban and rural, and there's a divide there. I mean, no, no doubt about it. Even people in urban communities have a hard time finding a doctor, particularly if they've had one and their doctor retires and they're, they're left as a stranded patient. But in rural communities and remote communities, it's often hard to attract professionals in those regions that want to stay or, uh, you know, uh, have enough professionals to be able to care for people with complex medical needs. So that'll be part of the focus. I think uh, you asked about Indigenous people. There's a set aside of $2 billion that's separate from the provincial transfers. And that $2 billion is what we're calling a health equity fund that will uh, be designed with Indigenous partners to um, continue the work that Indigenous partners, especially like here in BC through the First Nations Health Authority, are pursuing around uh, Indigenous ways of ensuring healthcare access. And 
focusing on keeping people healthy. And I think we have a lot to learn from our Indigenous partners, actually. And I'm pretty excited about what will come from that fund. Is there a similarity then with what what the federal government is doing with other provinces? Like this is an agreement with BC, but I know there have been other provinces that are signing on as well, right? There will be similar strands, yes. And, you know, I've spoken about data a lot this morning, and that will be one of the the themes of the agreement. There's a second theme around increasing access and and, um, uh, effectiveness of mental health supports and services. Each bilateral agreement will have its own unique particularities because each province is in a different place and has different challenges and different strengths. But there are some similar trends, yes, that we're looking for overall and that the premiers have agreed would be valuable. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time on that. Thank you very much, Simi. Really appreciate the conversation. This is Mornings with Simi. This week in the provincial budget, we heard that there is more money coming. Now, more money for quite a few things, but in particular, about a billion dollars towards mental health and addictions. And overall, you'd go, okay, that's great. But there's been some discussion about, well, is this the best way to approach this? We know what the politicians say. Let's find out, though, what the experts have to say about this. So joining us now is Dr. Mark Hayden, who's an adjunct professor at UBC's Faculty of Medicine and the UBC School of Population and Public Health. Dr. Hayden, thank you for joining us. Hello, Cindy. It's a pleasure to be back on the show. Well, okay. Let's talk about what we heard in the budget this week. Like, what did you think about what they're saying about this money for treatment? Well, it's interesting because I think the process of the provincial government waving flags as to what they believe started in January 30th when they decriminalized many drugs in small quantities. So really what they were saying to the public is we believe that drugs are actually a health problem, not a criminal justice problem, and they started to withdraw the law. And the next completely logical step was what they needed to do was implement a health response. And that's exactly what I see that this budget is doing. Now, if you think about all of the discussions that you and I and the public have had around an appropriate response to drugs in our society, often the debate is harm reduction versus treatment. And they're kind of seen as being this um, false dichotomy, somehow against each other. This budget offers both. And they both offer both in some sense of balance. So let me give you two examples. So the Redfish Treatment Center um, is specifically set up to treat concurrent disorders or dual diagnoses. So one of the most difficult populations to treat is people that have both mental health problems and addiction problems. What happens now is they go to an addictions program and say, I'm sorry, I can't help you. You have a mental health problem. They go to a mental health service and they say, I can't help you. You have an addiction problem. So we need services that are specifically set up to deal with both of those problems. And they've done that, which is, which is quite frankly fabulous. And while they are providing treatment, they're also providing harm reduction services. So one of the, one of the quotes that I often have said in interviews is we don't have a drug problem, we have a drug prohibition problem. Because right now, we have drugs widely available through a process called organized crime. The first drug law in Canada was 1908, so we've had 115 years to reflect on the fact that drug prohibition doesn't work. We, quite frankly, need to give people the drugs. And the model that's used to describe that these days is called safe supply. And one of the challenging truths 
is if you give somebody who's addicted to heroin, heroin, they can get on with their lives. The problems that often these folks face is that they're stigmatized, they're criminalized, and they're engaged in this criminal lifestyle. If you give heroin addicts heroin, they can, get, they can take care of their children, and quite frankly, they can be high school teachers. They can, they can get jobs. They can be completely normalized members of our society. But Dr. So, Dr. Hayden, what if we don't want that, though? What if we want people to be able to have the ability to say, I want treatment and I want to stop this today, and then they get that treatment? What about that part of it? Well, we need both. That's exactly what this budget is doing. It offers treatment services, absolutely, yes, but we have to engage people first. Some people are not ready for treatment. What we need to do is provide compassionate, caring physicians, nurses, social workers, counselors who engage people around a health process as they are providing them the drugs because the drugs are not the problem. Right, but the haven't we been doing that? Lifestyle. Haven't we been doing that? Like, isn't that the whole basis of harm reduction that we've been doing for 10 years? Well, no, we, we've done it in a very, very minimalistic way. I mean, we started with supervised injection sites. Yes, that was a huge sort of significant step forward, but it was insufficient. We actually need to people engage these folks in a structured health service where we provide them the drugs in a very, very um, progressive and inclusive way. And we need to provide it to lots of people. They need to be significant size services. I mean, right now, if I look at inside the supervised injection site, it has lineups outside of it. It's a, it's a tokenistic kind of treatment. We need to actually provide the type of services that are big enough to serve the population that is needy. Okay, so then do you feel this moves us towards actually making a dent in, you know, our problems that we have with overdoses and, and mental health and people who are unhoused? Yes. Um, absolutely, yes. Now, admittedly, we have an implementation challenge. Just throwing money at it is, is not enough because what we will experience, I'm willing to gaze into my crystal ball and predict that the moment they start to try and structure these services, we're gonna, they're going to have a problem. And the problem is the stigma that is everywhere is, also exists within the medical profession, it exists within the counseling profession, the nursing profession. All the people that need to be providing this service are also people that experience stigma. So what we need to do is find ways of engaging people around um, providing a compassionate, inclusive, appropriate service um, as this is happening. And that's going to be quite difficult for people who are setting up these services. Do you, do you see this happening soon, though? Does the budget provide, in your opinion, a way for us to start making some progress? Yes, absolutely, yes. Now, now it's interesting. As I was looking at the budget, the first question that I had is, is what's missing? And one of the observations that I strongly believe is that um, empowerment is healing. And so there's an organization in the downtown east side of Vancouver um, that is a peer network. It's called Van2, the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users. And it's a politically active group that is funded municipally. And it's really, really important. When you empower drug users, they actually get healthier. And so what I didn't see in the budget in my first scan was support for peer networks. And I asked a friend of mine who's kind of on the inner circle of this process um, whether this was something that he considered. And he said it actually is in the budget. It's called the Community Action Initiative, where peer networks will be supported throughout the, process, throughout the province. 
the way I think about it is if you had a group of men sitting around a room structuring services for women, that wouldn't fly. If you had a group of white women sitting down and structuring services for indigenous people, that wouldn't fly. And it would be obviously wrong. And so why would we structure health services without including the voice of people who will be receiving those services. And the only way to do that is to empower and to fund peer networks and organizations that are peer run and then invite them to the table and really listen to them, engage them in the process. And even that process will be healing for them. Now, I know you've also said that we need to start thinking of this like as the health problem, right? Not a criminology problem. Uh, But that's a mindset that, that average British Columbians have to get to, don't we? Yes, there, there, is, there is an attitude in the public that needs to shift. We need to fundamentally start seeing this as a health problem. And, you know, as we do that, you know, as these services get set up and evidence is generated, they need to have research um, as part of the process. Um, when evidence is generated, that needs to be shared widely with people that these services are actually working in this way. Interesting. Well, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. You're welcome very much, Cindy. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.